Welcome to church. It's great to see you here. You know it's school holidays and so many of the uni people are uh, on holidays and many others are away and it's but it's great to be here together and it's great to be here tonight. And there's so many great things that have been happening in our church. We had a great church meeting last Sunday morning after the service. And during the service, I just mentioned, boy, there's a family here, a, a new arrivals to Australia. They'd love a sofa and a microwave. And uh, we need a bus for someone to drive the bus down to ESA all the way down to Anglesey and back and then go back again and do that as well. And so after the service, we got two microwaves given to us and people gave out money uh, just for, for a sofa for this new arrival. And I thought, wow, what a generous church that is. And then uh, someone said, yep, I'm willing to drive the bus as well down to ESA and back. And so we're just so thrilled to see God, God working and, and providing for needs as they've, um, as they've come about. This morning, we just welcomed seven new members. And there's another seven that are ready to be mem- new members welcomed into our church as well. And next Sunday night, right here... Over here will be three people getting baptised and one of them is our famous drummer Josh Docking there. Woo! Great Josh, looking forward to that. And then there's also Kylie Brown as well, so that's great. And Sylvia McDowell too is going to be baptised next week, which is just going to be awesome as well. So she's well over 50 and yet she's uh, full of a heart that's so excited for what's going to be happening next week. So we're looking forward to them making their declaration of faith through baptism. So, so many great things are happening. So many people um, are just responding to God as he reaches out to each one of us and calls us closer to him. It's so exciting to see. Um, We want to let you know that the news sheet is just a wonderful thing to keep having a look at. And one of the big um, things that's coming up is uh, if you have kids at school holidays, you know how great it is just to to get them. There's a craft and fun morning this Thursday here at the church from 9.30 till 12 and parents can come along come along as well and it's a time of craft. It's the first time our church has done this and so Joan and the kids church team will be uh, doing that on Thursday and it'll just be a great time. $3 per child and that'll be fantastic. Another thing is growth groups. This course is an unbelievable course. So if you've ever thought about leading a group, it's a practical hands-on. You get to put together a Bible study from scratch you know you work through and it's an amazing course 10 10 weeks I think it is yeah 10 week practical course so comprehensive if ever you've thought you'd like to lead a small group or lead a Bible study this will in equip you and enhance you and it's starting not this Monday night next Monday night as well so that would be great to just indicate your interest in um, Mason Taylor is preaching next Sunday morning, guys. So that's exciting, isn't it? He's preaching on uh, Jesus, God among us, and he's looking at John 1, 43 to 51. So it'll be great, Mace. We're looking forward to that. Tonight, Gail is uh, challenging, uh, talking about one of the real questions that many people have. If, if God is a God of love and if his people are supposed to be loving, why has the church caused so much hurt down through history? And how can that be? How can we reconcile that together? Next week, it says that I'm preaching on what would Jesus say to a homosexual. And, and this is one of the biggest barriers to people. People just think the church hate homosexuals. And they think, 
Why would I ever go to churches that are just judgmental and criticizing and just write off, you know, gay people completely? And I think it's a big block for many people to come to faith because they just see Christians as so judgmental. What would Jesus say to a homosexual? Now, I'm broadening it next week because I don't think we should just pick on one type of people. Uh, we, we're going to change the title next week. It'll say, you know, what would Jesus say to relationships? And we're not only going to look at uh, what would Jesus say to a homosexual, but what would he say about uh, the way we should live our lives in relationships in general? Like before we get married, how should we act? Uh, in marriage, how should we act in our relationships? So we're going to look at sexuality from a number of different uh, angles next week. It's going to be pretty straight and, and hitting on a lot of things in the one message. So we're looking forward to that as well. Now, um, is Joanne Maskell here at all? No? No. Joanne and Bianca has, have been down at Coriong this week just helping out Corian Baptist. They had a kids program and they've been there with another team. So they uh, did a great job. Is it that Bianca up there? No, 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 no. Bianca's not here either. No, nope, that's fine. So what I'm, uh, I think they've been doing a great job. And also right now, ESA, the teen camp is, is down there as well. Um, anyone been down at the ESA camps over the last week, like a week ago? No? Great. How did that go, Andy? Yep, good. That was the, the kids one? And now the teens there. And so lots of our young people are actually either on the camp or leading. So why don't we just pause and thank God for those opportunities and pray for them and then pray that God would speak to us tonight through God's word. Let's pray. God, we just thank you for what you're doing. We can see your work all around us. We can see it in changed lives. People responding generously to needs when they're just made known. God, we thank you so much for the way in which people are coming to faith in you, how others are wanting to declare their faith through baptism. God, how others are saying, I want to call this group of people uh, my church family. Lord, we thank you for what you're doing. And we just continue to look to you for every step of our Christian journey, of our walk. Lord, we pray that you would continue uh, to make your presence known every day to us as we pray and as we read your word and as we share with others around us. Help us to love you and follow you and serve you, God, in all that we do. And God, tonight, we just pray for those that are out uh, serving you on camp and on mission. Lord, we thank you for Joanne Maskell and, and Bianca McMaster. We thank you for they're serving with Coriong Baptist up there in their kids program this week. We pray that it would have gone really well and you would have just sustained them and strengthened them through that. We pray that their kids' lives would have been touched and impacted through that. And Lord, we thank you too for those that are on ESA camp and those that have been. Thank you for the people that have led last week at the children's camp and those now that are out there at the teen camp and just doing so much in, in serving and loving the kids that are there. We pray for our teenagers that are there and others that are there. Lord, impact them. Change their lives. Lord, turn their whole lives upside down with your love and your grace. And may they uh, look back on, on this camp, this, this time as being such a special time. And God, tonight, thank you that you are here right now. Thank you that you're in this place. Your presence is is here 
And God, as we worship you through song, as we open your word, we just say, God, speak to us, change us, transform us. We long to grow deeper and deeper in love with you, to be more and more obedient to what you're calling us to do. And God, to use the time that we have on this earth to make an eternal difference for you and for your glory. Thank you for your presence. Thank you that you're here. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, hear me now. Oh, wait on. I've learned this. <laughs> oh, it's working. Oh, okay. <laughs> this only happens to me. <laughs> okay. You can hear me now. Yay! <laughs> okay. <laughs> Thank you, God. Can we pray? <laughs> Thank you, Lord. We just want to come before you. Um, Lord, thank you for life. Thank you for the life that you give to us. And i just really reminded as we sang those songs in awe of you that you are holy, blessing and honour and glory and power are yours. And as we come to uh, look at this subject tonight, Lord, uh, I personally feel quite grieved um, that your name has been dishonoured throughout the centuries. Um, and that is not who you are. You are a holy, righteous, glorious a God that is full of justice and mercy. And so tonight I pray that we could go some little way in furthering our understanding of firstly who you are, but also um, the truth of your church and how you see your church to be. In your holy name we pray. Amen. Okay. Well, a couple of weeks ago, um, there was a... Some of you may have seen it, actually. There was a um, documentary on SBS, and it was really disturbing. It was actually about um, the country of Nigeria... And in Nigeria, up until just most recently, there was a practice of, of taking small children, some as little as babies, and actually torturing them and disfiguring them um, simply because people believed that they were witches or warlocks. Did anyone see that? Yeah, it was just horrendous, wasn't it? And... Um, 
This was something that people in these villages truly believed and that these children were actually casting um, spells upon the village. And so if there was sickness in the village or if there was um, you know, famine or, or things that were happening that, that weren't not right, it was a result of these children who, who were witches or warlocks. Now that belief actually came out of, believe it or not, a so-called Pentecostal charismatic Christian church. And in actual fact, the documentary traced it right back to a woman who had uh, written material, a book, and had written and had done some movies, grotesque movies, um, about the fact that the devil was actually inhabiting children and that these children needed to be punished or even expelled from their um, village. And it was actually horrendous what was happening. And it only changed when one man really uh, lobbied for truth and lobbied the government to outlaw this practice. And when I think back over the centuries... There has been a chronicled list of uh, this type of injustice that has occurred throughout millennium. We can just, I can just run through a handful of things which you may or may not be familiar with, but which when I think about it causes great consternation and great embarrassment and shame to me as a Christian. But um, I guess I have to think firstly for the first 300 years of Christianity, it was actually the opposite. Christians were persecuted. Um, and it wasn't until about um, the year 300 AD where um, a new emperor of Rome, a man called Constantine, Constantine the First or Constantine the Great, as he was known, he was the first uh, Roman emperor that became a Christian. And what he did was actually uh, institute the Roman Catholic Church as the one truth faith across the Roman Empire. And after that, persecution ceased for Christians, which was really great. But unfortunately, what happened was when power is coupled with faith, that you get the, the um, actual government, you know, sanctioning a particular faith, and in this case it was Christianity, then you're open to all sorts of, of corruption and rorts and injustices. And over the years, that's exactly what has happened. Um, we think about the Crusades. They occurred around the time of the 1100s. And these Crusades were actually sanctioned by the Catholic Church and the Popes to actually, um, initially, to overthrow Muslims that had taken over Jerusalem. And so they started out as a, a godly holy war, so to speak. But in actual fact, um, by, by 100 years later, um, the then Pope, Innocence II, actually instructed people 
who chose to go on the Crusades, he um, told them that they could earn their salvation by actually going on these Crusades. And for many years, hundreds of years, there were a series of Crusades that um, ended up not being very holy. By the end of a couple of um, hundred years, more than three million people were slaughtered through the Crusades. Move forward to about 1200 um, through to about 15, 1600, we had a, a state, a church instituted um, practice called the uh, Inquisition. Anyone heard of the Inquisition? I think um, there's been some horrendous movies that have been um, made about the Inquisition where unspeakable tortures have occurred. But the Inquisition started out as an, uh, as an a church institution to address heresy within the church and heresy and doctrine of the church. And, and uh, when you look at history, there were actually three waves of the Inquisition. The first was by a Pope, Alexander III, um, and that was started around 1100 um, AD. And then the second was around the 1400s, and that was instituted by King Ferdinand and Queen Isabel of Spain. And that was the one where, you know, when we really hear about um, torture actually being sanctioned. In, in those ways. And, and when you read about that history, and I don't want to go into a lot of detail, but people were brought in and questioned um, for their, their doctrine and their beliefs. And you actually didn't have any leg to stand on. They could call witnesses in against and testify against you. And these witnesses could have been criminals, but it didn't matter. And, and if you confessed then um, you got the least worst penalty, which was life imprisonment. But if you didn't confess, then you were killed and murdered. So you really didn't want to be around in, you know, southern France and, and, um, and Spain in those years. And then we move through millennium and we have the practice of slavery. And you can think, well, you know, the church seemed to have upheld that practice of slavery over millennia. In fact, slavery existed before the Jews were formed as a nation and after Israel was, was conquered. And, and it seems that in the Bible, slavery existed and it seemed as if God allowed slavery to occur. But we know also that slavery was not God's best intention, just as divorce he allowed in certain instances divorce, but it wasn't God's best. And in God's word, he actually talks about how slaves should be treated. And we, if you read history, we come to understand that the slaves in, in um, Jesus' time and before were seen as domestic slaves, that they were part of a family and were treated much differently to slaves that we, we came to understand that were treated through the African slave trades much later in the 16, 17, 18, uh, 19, uh, 1800s and 1900s. But there's certainly a blight 
on the Christian church, so to speak, that a Christians, God-fearing people, had slaves. And we can see from Timothy, in Timothy 1 Timothy 1, 3 to 1, that God's heart um, was not that this was his best because he says, Paul says, and he writes, if you want to turn to 1 Timothy 1, 3 to 11, um, he explains it in this way. And he says, when I left for Macedonia, I urged you to stay there in Ephesus and stop those who are teaching wrong doctrine. Don't let people waste time in endless speculation over myths and spiritual pedigrees. For these things only cause arguments. They don't help people live a life of faith in God. The purpose of my instruction is that all the Christians there would be filled with love that comes from a pure heart, a clear conscience and sincere faith. But some teachers have missed the whole point. They have turned away from these things and have spent their time arguing and talking foolishness. They want to be known as teachers of the law of Moses, but they don't know what they are talking about, even though they seem so confident. We know these laws are good when they are used as God intended, but they were not made for people who do what is right, who have right hearts with God. They're for people who are disobedient and rebellious, who are ungodly and sinful, who consider nothing sacred and defile what is holy, who murder their father or mother or other people. These laws are for people who are sexually immoral, for homosexuals and slave traders, for liars and oath breakers, and for those who do anything else that contradicts the right teaching that comes from the glorious good news entrusted to me by our blessed Lord. That's a mouthful, but basically what Paul is saying is that that wasn't God's intention, that wasn't God's best to have slaves. Sexual immorality and sexual perversion within the church, and we hear about that. We hear how uh, people have been sexually abused, young boys, young girls have been abused in the church. And that wasn't God's intention. That wasn't God's best. And, and what about some of the accusations that have been um, filed against missionaries? Dale and Sandy Larson in their book, Seven Myths About Christianity, said, the missionaries arrive uninvited. Despite noble intentions, they are ignorant of the place where they set up shop and indifferent to the hearts and values of the people they have come to help. They meddle in things which are none of their business. They assume that the natives' traditional spirituality is defective, even devilish. They bribe or coerce the people to abandon their traditional ways until, in the process of trying to save the people, the missionaries wind up destroying them. These are commonly held beliefs by unbelievers, people who do not walk with God. Stephen Weinberg sums it up. Sums it up. He was a prize-winning physicist, Nobel Prize-winning. And he says, with or without religion, you would have good people doing good things and evil people doing evil things. But for good people to do evil things, 
that takes religion. That's a pretty powerful statement. And over the years, one would have to say that the legacy of the church in some ways can attest that much injustice and much evil has occurred. So what do we, how do we argue that? What, what do we say about that for those that love God? How do we say to those that label those things at us that God is actually not like that? He's a good and holy and just God. Well, I think what we have to do before we can look at the followers of God who make up his church that maybe have perpetuated this injustice, we actually have to look at who they were following to see what this God is like. And we really have to go back to the very beginning because in the beginning we see that God made everything beautiful and there was no injustice. And right after he created everything, we see in, um, in verse 2, 16 of uh, Genesis, that God said to Adam and Eve, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it, you will surely die. Now, what you have to stop and remember here is that up until this point, Adam and Eve had no concept of sin. They had no concept of good or evil, and they had no concept of death. But here God, after spending beautiful time with his creation, says, Everything is yours except for this one thing. And if you disobey me, there is a thing called death which will occur and that will occur immediately. And you wonder why? What, what's this about? Well, sin is basically disobedience to God and God hates sin so dreadfully. And I think... What we have forgotten in our age of grace is that God hates sin with a passion. And God is holy and his essential character and his essential nature is one of holiness. And so when he sees sin, when he sees disobedience, to him it is so dreadful it actually deserves death. And I think we find that hard as followers of Jesus with grace to understand God's holy, righteous nature. But God is holy and he is just and he is righteous. He says in 2 Chronicles 19.7, Now let the fear of the Lord be upon you. Judge carefully. For with the Lord our God there is no injustice or partiality or bribery. God hates all sin and God's penalty for sin is death. And then in Psalm 9, 8, he says, he will judge the world in righteousness. He will govern his peoples with justice. 
his justice. And in Isaiah 51, 4 to 5, it says, Listen to me, my people. Hear me, my nation. The law will go out from me. My justice will become a light to the nations. My righteousness draws near speedily. My salvation is on the way and my arm will bring justice to the nations. God is a a just God. His justice represents his holiness and his purity and his hatred of sin. You know, all men and women die. We die eventually. The penalty for sin has not been erased, but we know that the penalty for sin was taken up by Jesus Christ on the cross and those that know him and give our lives to him will live for all eternity with him in paradise. But the problem is that that incredible cost for us can sometimes be taken for granted. And then when God does intervene, as when we read the Old Testament, God intervenes quite powerfully at different times. Sometimes we are shocked. Sometimes we are horrified. Sometimes we can't align this God of incredible grace and mercy with this God that seems to be so full of righteous anger and justice. When the Israelites finally made it to the promised land, God told them that he would go before them and kill off all the inhabitants. This meant women and children. And you would say that this can't be a God of justice to kill innocent women and children. But listen to this verse. After the Lord your God has driven them out before you, Do not say to yourself, the Lord has brought me here to take possession of this land because of my righteousness. No, it is not on account of, no, it is on account of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is going to drive them out before you. It is not because of your righteousness or your integrity that you are going in to take possession of their land but on account of the wickedness of these nations. The Lord your God will drive them out before you to accomplish what he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. Understand then that it is not because of your righteousness that the Lord your God is giving you this land, this good land to possess. For you are a stiff-necked people. The Lord God is just and his justice is not evil. It is holy and righteous. And in this instance, he saw that the whole land was wicked. And we know from his word that all sin deserves the penalty of death. So, In some ways, that helps us to understand the God that we follow, the God of the Old Testament, who then showed his final goodness and justice in punishing his own son on the cross at Calvary. And the most violent expression of God's wrath and judgment is seen 
at the cross. If ever a person had room to complain of justice or injustice, sorry, it was Jesus. He was the only innocent man who was punished by God. So if we stagger at the wrath of God, we should really stagger at the cross because this is where our moral outrage to a God who seems at times to be unjust and, and therefore his followers at times to be unjust. We really need to just look at the cross. God says, you turn justice into bitterness and cast righteousness to the ground. You trample on the poor and force him to give you grain. Therefore, though you have built stone mansions, you will not live in them. Though you have planted lush vineyards, you will not drink their wine, for I know the offences and how great your sins. God, who is just and who is holy and who has a standard for our behaviour, knows that we can never live up to that, so sent his son to, draw, to die on the cross for us, also expects us to be just. And yet for most of the Bible we read that his followers were indeed unjust. And his response was moral outrage and judgment. And we go to the New Testament and Jesus says, first of all, our model of justice. This is how we are to act as followers. He says, here is my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him and he will bring justice to the nations. He will not shout or cry out. Or raise his voice in the streets, a bruised reed he will not break. And a smouldering wick he will not snuff out. In faithfulness he will bring forth justice. He will not falter or be discouraged till he establishes justice on earth. In his law the islands will put their hope. Isaiah foretold the king of justice, we're told in Hebrews, which was Jesus, our model of justice. And as we see that as our God, who as followers of this God we are to model, our greatest model of justice comes in this paragraph here, that Jesus was the one whom we follow, the one who, ex who gave out and meted out justice on a lost and broken world. But Jesus was just not all pure love. He was also one that couldn't bear the sins of men and particularly those in power. And he goes on to say in Luke 11.42, Woe to you Pharisees, because you give God a tenth of your mint, rue and all other kinds of garden herbs, but you neglect justice and the love of God. Jesus, like God, abhorred sin and abhorred injustice. And so... To make it right, to make it right, he enabled his followers, those that had given their lives to him, 
to live according to his word and his gospel and his holy ways. And we have become his image bearers, people under the new covenant, the church, chosen and holy to exhibit his justice in a lost and unjust world. 1 Peter 2.9 says, You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into this light, into his wonderful light. So you might say, we have become the chosen nation that was Israel. And just as God through the Old Testament um, gave that incredible honour and privilege of Israel to model God's holiness and justice, and just as they failed so many times through the Old Testament and wrought injustice, now God through Jesus Christ has made us a chosen people, a holy nation. And we are to be that representative of God's justice and holiness, his image bearers in this world. And so the question is, how are we doing? How are we going? Are we really upholding that? Well, I think you can see from that introduction and to the abuses that have been generated from the church, we haven't done particularly well. We've had some spectacular failures. But I have to say, those failures were not what I would say is authentic faith by authentic Christians. You see, to understand why those failures occurred, we have to understand the difference between religion and the gospel or cultural Christianity versus authentic Christianity. You see, Jesus said... Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evil doers. God has some harsh words for those that do not obey his will. And what we find is that those who earn their way to salvation, which is another word for religion, building your identity on your moral achievements, can never truly follow the true gospel of Jesus Christ and have their lives transformed. You see, the central message of the Bible is that we can only have a relationship with God by sheer grace. Our moral efforts are too feeble and falsely motivated to ever merit salvation. Jesus, through his death and resurrection, has provided salvation for us, which we receive as a gift And all churches believe this in one form or another. 
but growth in character and changes in behaviour occur gradually for people after a person becomes a Christian. And so there is a mistaken belief that a person must clean up his or her own life in order to meet God's presence and, and um, his standards. That's not Christianity. That's religion. And I guess... My belief is that when abuse occurs in the church, it is through people who have worked their way to salvation, who are religious, who through their good works may have produced a good deal of moral behaviour in their life, but inside are filled with self-righteousness, even cruelty, bigotry and and, and self-contempt, some of them. They're always feeling that somehow they've got to compare themselves to others and they're not sure that they're good enough. So what they do is they project their fears onto others and if you aren't with them, you are against them. They're pharisaical. And Pharisaic religion is so damaging because when we fail to build our identity in Christ rather than on the standards that we perceive to be Christ's standards alone. Then we struggle for purpose and meaning and we'll always direct our attentions and project our attentions towards performance or maintaining control. And this is what members or parts of the church has done when it has abused its position and power. You see, when we go back to that quote from Scripture in Isaiah, the one that prophesied against about Jesus, we see that Jesus came in anything but power. He came in humility and shame. He came as a servant. That is the true way that the church should operate and be. And if I am living with Jesus, I cannot feel superior to anyone, and yet I have nothing to prove to anyone. I do not think more of myself, but I don't think less of myself either. Instead, I think of myself less and live more according to the glory and the holiness and the justice that is in me in order to serve a hurting and lost world. Does that make sense to people? And this actually means that I cannot despise those who do not believe as I do since I am not saved by correct doctrine or practice and I cannot enforce my beliefs on someone and I cannot legislate those beliefs and I cannot take advantage of the vulnerable or the weak and I cannot use my power, which is the power of God Almighty that is within me, I cannot use that or abuse that because I am a sinner saved by the grace of God. But it also means that I cannot be intimidated by anyone. 
And I'm not so insecure that I have to fear the power of success or talent of people that are different from me or even the same as me. The gospel of Jesus Christ makes it possible for me and others to escape oversensitivity, defensiveness and the need to criticise others, the need to control the need to misuse power. You see, a Christian's identity is not based on the need to be perceived as a good person, but on God's valuing of you in Christ. And Jesus, he consistently refused to use coercive power. He knowingly let one of his disciples betray him and then he surrendered himself without protest to his captors. And the Bible goes on to talk about the kingdom of God, God, the kingdom of God which the church will bring in to fullness. And that kingdom is talked about as sheep among wolves, a tiny seed in the garden, yeast in bread dough, salt in meat. These metaphors of the kingdom which the church is supposed to usher in describe a kind of secret force that works from within because elsewhere in the Bible it says the kingdom of God is within us. And this kingdom of God seems to work best as a minority movement within us in opposition to the kingdom of this world. And it's dangerous when this kingdom of God, which is the church, starts to align itself too much politically and too much powerfully with the kingdom of this world. It is subtle. It is like the servant that is to bring justice, but as he brings justice... Not a reed will he bruise or a smouldering wick will he snuff out. That is the justice that should permeate the world and that justice God has abrogated to us, each and every one of us. Scary, isn't it? And yet at the same time, the message is that if we obey God, truly obey and truly surrender our lives completely to him, that we live less and he lives more in us, then we need not fear that his church, his bride, will in fact be a powerful force of justice in the world. And all I can say to you tonight is that the instances of monumental failings of the church in abuse of its power has always come not through authentic Christianity but through warped religiosity. There is no other way, there is no other explanation for when we model ourselves on Christ, we have a very different kingdom 
here on earth. I want to wind up by reading something that I thought was absolutely amazing. It's a little, I just want you to sit back and, and, and listen. It's a little long, but it, it, it's, it goes to the heart of, I think, this answer of authentic Christianity versus cultural religiosity. And it was written by Matthew Paris in November of 2008 for The Times. It was an article in The Times in England. And the heading says, as an atheist, I truly believe Africa needs God. And he says, before Christmas, I returned after 45 years to the country that as a boy I knew as Nizerland. Today it's Malawi. And the Times Christmas Appeal includes a small British charity working there. Pump Aid helps rural communities to install a simple pump, letting people keep their village well sealed and clean. And I went to see this work. It inspired me, renewing my flagging faith in development, in development charities. But travelling in Malawi refreshed another belief too, one I've been trying to banish all my life but an observation I've been unable to avoid since my African childhood. It confounds my ideological beliefs, stubbornly refuses to fit my worldview and has embarrassed my growing belief that there is no God. Now a confirmed atheist, I've become convinced of the enormous contribution that Christian evangelism makes in Africa. Sharply distinct from the work of secular NGOs, government projects and international aid projects. These alone will not do. Education and training alone will not do. In Africa, Christianity changes people's hearts. It brings a spiritual transformation. The rebirth is real. The change is good. I used to avoid this truth by applauding, as you can, the practical work of mission churches in Africa. It's a pity I would say that salvation is part of the package, but Christians, black and white, working in Africa, do heal the sick, do teach people to read and write, and only the severest kind of secularist could see a mission hospital or school and say the world would be better off without it. I would allow that if faith was needed to motivate missionaries to help, then fine. But what counted was the help, not the faith. But this doesn't fit the facts. Faith does more than support the missionary. It also transferred to his flock. This is the effect that matters so immensely and which I cannot help observing. First, then, the observation. We had friends who were missionaries, and as a child, I stayed often with them. I also stayed alone with my little brother in a traditional rural African village. In the city, we had working for us Africans who had converted and were strong believers. The Christians were always different. Far from having cowed or confined its converts, their faith appeared to have liberated and relaxed them. There was a liveliness, a curiosity and engagement with the world, a directness in their dealings with others that seemed to be missing in traditional African life. They stood tall. This time in Malawi, it was the same. I met no missionaries, 
You don't encounter missionaries in the lobbies of expensive hotels discussing developmental strategies as you do with big NGOs. But instead I noticed that a handful of the most impressive African members of the Pumpade team were privately strong Christians. Privately, because the charity is entirely secular and I never heard any of its team so much as mention religion while working in the villages. But I picked up the Christian references in our conversations. One I saw was studying a devotional textbook in the car. One, one Sunday, went off to church at dawn for a two-hour service. It would suit me to believe that their honesty Diligence and optimism in their work was unconnected with personal faith. Their work was secular, but surely affected by what they were. What they were was in turn influenced by a conception of man's place in the universe that Christianity had taught. There's been a long fashion among Western academic sociologists for placing tribal value systems within a ring fence beyond critiques founded in our own culture, theirs and therefore best for them, authentic and of intrinsically equal worth to ours. I don't follow this. I observe that tribal belief is no more peaceable than ours and that it suppresses individuality. People think collectively, first in terms of the community, extended family and tribe. This rural traditional mindset feeds into the big man and gangster politics of the African city. The exaggerated respect for a swaggering leader and the literal inability to understand the whole idea of loyal opposition. Anxiety, fear of evil spirits, of ancestors, of nature in the wild, of a tribal hierarchy, of quite everyday things strikes deep into the whole structure of rural African thought. Every man has his place and call it fear or respect. A great weight grinds down the individual spirit, stunting curiosity. People won't take the initiative, won't take things into their own hands or on their own shoulders. Christianity, post-Reformation and post-Luther with its teaching of a direct, personal two-way link between the individual and God, unmediated by the collective and unsubordinate to any other human being, smashes straight through the philosophical and spiritual framework I've just described. It offers something to hold on to those anxious to cast off a crushing tribal group think. That is why and how it liberates those who want Africa to walk tall amidst 21st century global competition must not kid themselves that providing the material means or even the know-how that accompanies what we call development will make the change. A whole belief system must first be supplanted. And I'm afraid it has to be supplanted by another. Removing Christian evangelism from the African equation may leave the continent at the mercy of a malign fusion of Nike, the witch doctor, the mobile phone and the machete. Powerful words, aren't they? What a copy of that if anyone wants it. But I think for me it summarises very much the heart of the gospel, the heart that liberates, that doesn't imprison, the heart that empowers,
and not disempowers. The heart that calls for justice and not injustice. And although tonight I may not comprehensively have answered your question, what about the church and all the injustices down through the centuries and that the church continues to do? But I hope I've inspired you and encouraged you to stay close to the one who models the true justice of this world so that we can go out just like the mustard seed, just like the yeast, surreptitiously, unnoticed, just like those missionaries in Malawi, just like Margie and John in Uganda, just like where you are planted in your workplace, in your schools, in your homes, in this community, and be the image bearer of the one who is called the king of justice. Let's pray. Lord God, we come before you. We pray that you would empower us to see that our lives are not our own, that they are yours, they are bought with a price, and as such you are a God of justice. You are holy, you are righteous. We grieve for the way that human failings and man has somehow shamed and brought embarrassment to your name. Oh Lord, help each one of us here to somehow right the wrongs of the past and even right the wrongs of the present of your church, which many would throw accusations of, of misuse of power, of spiritual abuse at. Help us, Lord, to grieve that. Help us to check ourselves constantly, to not become pharisaical and say that, we could never do that. Help us to always check our hearts so that they are in line with you, so that we really are the aroma of Christ in this world and not the smell of death. Help us, Lord, to live lives that are holy and pure so that we can be image bearers of your justice and mercy and grace in this very, very needy world. We pray this in your name. Amen.